Amen. Well, we uh, get to continue our series in the book of Revelation. If you are new to Ocean View or just visiting this week, we have been on a journey uh, discovering the book of Revelation. We started back in the fall, and uh, we are heading towards our completion on April 7th, and we have made it to chapter 20. Well done, church. And uh, I know I feel like this every week when I preach through Revelation, but this was really hard this week. Uh, chapter 20, there is so much packed into this chapter, but uh, we're going to have a good time this morning doing that. Uh, I want to begin with a story. I want to tell you about a guy who was walking across a footbridge. Well, it's actually a full bridge with cars down the middle, but there was a, a passenger lane on the side that, that people could safely walk on. And he's walking over this bridge, and it's extremely high. It's way over a river. And as he's walking along, he gets finally closer and closer to the middle and he sees a guy and he realizes the guy's on the outside of the rail hanging on about to jump off. And he screams, no, no, don't do it. And the guy says, I'm going to do it. And he says, don't do it. And the guy says, well, nobody loves me. There's no one in my life that loves me. And the guy goes, that's not true. He said, God loves you. He said, uh, do, do you know God? Are, are you a, a person of faith? And he said, yeah, I am. And the guy said, are you, are you a Christian or are you a Jew? And he said, no, I'm, I'm a Christian. And he goes, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? And he said, I'm a Protestant. He goes, no way, me too. He said, what denomination? He said, well, I'm a Baptist. He says, me too. This is amazing. He says, uh, he says, what, uh, what kind of Baptist? Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And he says, he says well, Northern Baptist. Guy says, this is amazing. Me too. He goes, liberal Northern Baptist or conservative Northern Baptist? The guy says, conservative Northern Baptist. Oh man, we're on the same page. He says, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? And he goes, Northern Baptist, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region. The guy's like, this is amazing. Me too, me too. He says, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1879 or Council of 1912? He says, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region of 1912. And the guy screams, heretic, die, and pushes him off the bridge. We all laugh because it shows the absolute ridiculous lengths we go to <coughs> to focus on the minutiae details that divide us instead of reminding ourselves that we are all followers of Jesus Christ across different denominational lines. Well, the reason I share that with you this morning is as we look at Revelation chapter 20, we come to call... we come to a passage in the first seven verses that talks about the millennium. And this is one of the things that Christians have unfortunately divided over. And they have talked about whether you are a pre-tribulation, a post-tribulation, a no-tribulation, whether you're pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial. And it's interesting that entire denominations have labeled themselves 
and excluded others based on Revelation chapter 20. Stop and think about that. Eight verses in one chapter. And we are dividing over that. That seems remarkable. Well, I hope the disagreements have never led to anybody being pushed off a bridge, but it has definitely been a heated debate at times. So we're going to jump into the first six verses and see what all the controversy is about. And uh, Pete is going to read for me today. So Revelation 21 through 6. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key of the abyss and holding it in his hand, a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient snake, who's the devil or Satan, and bound him up for a thousand years. And he drew him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him kept him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. And I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and, beca and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. I've entitled this first point, The Thousand Year Maze. And it certainly can be a maze. I'm going to try and walk you through those three kind of positions, how people have historically understood uh, this passage. And uh, then we're going to kind of look at what are the best ways to interpret these verses. So the first position is called premillennialism. And we have a handy diagram we're going to throw up on the screen for you. And as you can see, it kind of starts with creation. That's a good idea. And then you can see the cross, Jesus' first coming. And then there's the church age. That's what we're in now, according to the premillennialist position. At some point in the future, there's going to be a rapture where Jesus comes back, but he doesn't actually fully come back and touch planet Earth. He kind of comes back in the air, and all of the Christian believers at that point are raptured. We go up, we are with Christ. And then it goes through uh, a time of tribulation a seven-year period of tribulation. Now, according to the premillennialist idea, the idea or the purpose of that seven years of tribulation is to wake up the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and they feel that during the tribulation, that seven-year period, that Israel will be awakened and realize their need for Christ, that He truly is the Messiah, and then there's going to be a massive gathering of all the armies of the earth. They're going to surround Israel, going to try to wipe it out. And at that point, Jesus comes back. And uh, uh, that's his full second coming. And he comes with the armies of heaven, and they gather, and they're ready for the massive battle. Interestingly enough, in the book of Revelation, the battle never occurs. Jesus just shows up, and it's over. And so he shows up... The, the battle is won, and uh, at that point, Israel acknowledges him as the Messiah, and then there is the millennium. Satan is bound during this time, and during this thousand-year period, all of God's promises in the first half of the Bible about Israel 
are fulfilled and enjoyed, and it's a thousand years of peace and wonderful prosperity. At the end of that thousand-year period, Satan is released uh, for a brief time, one last gasp to try to deceive the nations, and then uh, he is judged, thrown into the lake of fire, and uh, we get to enjoy the new creation with Jesus forever. So that's essentially the premillennial position. It's called premillennial or pre-tribulation because all of the Christians are taken up before that happens. And Jesus, that rapture occurs before those events. Now the position was first proposed in the 1800s by an Irish Anglican pastor named John Nelson Darby. And he was a very influential leader in the Plymouth Brethren movement. 1909, there was a Bible produced called the Schofield Bible. And it was full of charts and diagrams explaining this position. And there was millions and millions of them produced. And uh, people really glommed on to that, really kind of got a hold of the premillennial position. And then in the 1970s, early 1970s, apparently it came out in 1972, Christian movie, like uh, it's called A Thief in the Night. And uh, it scared a lot of people into becoming a Christian, and uh, which I'm not sure is the best reason to follow Jesus. But anyway, some people uh, came to Christ through it, but uh, very much laid out this premillennial position. Then in the late 1970s, a book came along, by a man named Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. And that really kind of exploded the pre-millennial, pre-tribulation uh, idea. And then in 1995, the first of the Left Behind book series came out. And there's 16 novels in that series, and they were very popular. Sold millions and millions of copies. Eventually spun off into movies. And uh, that's sort of the pre-millennial, pre-tribulation uh, belief and why it's so popular in North America. Interestingly enough, not very popular in the rest of the world. Interesting how that works. Then there's the ah millennial position. Ah, in this case, is simply means negating or nothing. So there's no millennium. So in this option, the thousand years is to be understood symbolically. There's no literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus. In this option, it is stressed that the New Testament knows only one second coming of Jesus. There's no kind of rapture where we kind of meet Jesus in the air and then He returns later at the final battle, establishing a 1,000 years of peace on the earth. So the millennials say that idea of a of a rapture is ridiculous. The rest of the New Testament says Jesus comes back and wraps up history once. So there is no millennial. It's the ah-millennial position. You kind of see that on the diagram. And Jesus' reign actually starts at His first coming, where because of the events of Jesus' birth, life, teachings, miracles, death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, Satan is essentially bound. He's still uh, active. They describe it kind of like the idea of a mafia kingpin is put in jail. He's officially in jail, but he's still running things from in there. He's getting his henchmen to do stuff. (coughs) And they say that's very analogous to the way Satan is bound, that Jesus' work on the cross 
uh, bound him officially. He's in jail, but he can still deceive and tempt and do all the things he does uh, through uh, sin and all of his demonic forces. And so the rest, um, and Satan is bound until Jesus' second coming. At that point, there's a brief time when he is released, gets one last gasp to try to deceive the nations, and then uh, Jesus uh, judges him and uh, reigns forever in the new creation. Finally, there is the post-millennial position. In this option, there's only one final coming of Jesus as well, uh, but it is after the 1,000 year, the millennial position, or period of time. And before Jesus comes back, that 1,000 year period of history is an incredible time, according to the post-millennial position, where the gospel just sweeps over the world more than it's doing right now. And every country, every people group, every language around the world get, gives an amazing response to the Gospel message. And uh, they believe that the thousand-year period is not, neither a symbol of the role of the saints in heaven, nor it is a symbol of the spiritual role of Jesus in the hearts of Christians, they believe it is an incredible active time of the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of the Word, uh, and the Gospel will ultimately transform society. The post-mill position believes that the two other systems of thought, the pre-mill and the ah-mill, underestimate the power of the Gospel. So, there's the kind of three brief snapshots, the three positions. Now, our friend throughout the series... Uh, Daryl Johnson, one of the scholars I've quoted a lot of times, says that each of the three positions were produced by godly students of the Bible, people who sincerely want to understand what the Bible says and how they can live their lives in response to it. And he says it's really important to keep that in mind because when we look at those different positions, we're not saying one is anti-God or incorrect or it's not the... The, it's produced by people who don't take the Bible seriously. Because you can't say that. All three positions are viewed as people who look at God's Word as inspired. God wrote it. Second, he says that each of the three positions uh, is blind to, or is sees something that the other positions are blind to. Each option both grasps some aspect of truth and is blind to other aspects of the truth. So, in the first one, the pre-trib, pre-millennial, there are some really faulty ideas at the foundation of that approach. The biggest is that it is impossible with their scheme of reading everything in Revelation absolutely literally, it's really difficult to maintain that all the way through the entire book of Revelation and the other books of the Bible that talk about uh, the end times. For example, when we met Jesus in Revelation 4 and 5, he's pictured as a lamb on the throne, and he has seven horns and seven eyes. Is Jesus actually literally right now sitting at God, the right hand of God the Father with seven horns and seven eyes? No. That's symbolic. And we looked at that in Revelation 4 and 5, realizing the eyes are always a symbol of wisdom in the Bible. Seven is the number of 
fullness or completeness. So it's saying Jesus is all-knowing. He's completely wise. Horns, over and over and over again in the Bible, are always a symbol of strength. Seven, the number of completeness, saying Jesus is in fact all-powerful. So the problem with the pre-trib and pre-millennial position is at certain points, they're taking things completely literally, and they're pointing to the words on the page, and they're saying it says it right there. And at other times, they find it impossible to maintain that. It's extremely unclear when you should do which one. And so that's been a bit of a problem for that position. The other uh, major criticism of this idea is that in order to make the pre-millennial position uh, work, you have to really push all of Jesus' uh, amazing work at kind of the end of history. You have to push it past the, the, the rapture. And so the idea that all of the Christians are taken out of the world, and then Jesus does this amazing stuff. He saves the nation of Israel. They're brought to repentance. Others in the world are brought to faith through the period of the tribulation, all these kind of things. Then there's this thousand-year reign of Christ where things are absolutely amazing. All of that tends, they didn't intend it, but it tends to foster this idea that we as Christian believers, who cares? We don't really have a role. Jesus is going to take care of it all anyways. And my goodness, we can't wait for the rapture and just get out of here. Pastor and author Mark Driscoll in his book, The Radical Reformation, said this. He said, how sick are we when the most popular books among American Christians are about the rapture, as if the goal of the Christian life were to leave this trailer park of a planet before God's tornado touches down on all the sinners. Now, that's pretty bold and pretty blunt, uh, but over the years, when I think about it, I have had hundreds and hundreds of conversations with Christian believers who really embrace this position, and they say things like, Pastor Dan, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry so much about things like the environment, this world. It's all just going to burn up anyways. We're all out of here at the rapture. And then they said, and you're, you're constantly worried about like proclamation of the gospel and people coming to Jesus. They're like, God's going to take care of it. We don't really have that big of a role in it anyways. So I'm sure that position when Mr. Darby thought it up in the 1800s, he wasn't intending any of those things. But over time, that's been some of the effects. All right, well, what about... Oh, but I do need to say, on the positive side, the pre-trib, pre-millennial position has produced an incredible fervor, an incredible zeal in people longing for Jesus' second coming, longing for His return. And that's extremely biblical. We're told over and over and over again, you know, look forward to the day when Jesus comes back. Because that's the day when justice comes, when He wraps up history. So, there's, there's definitely some positive aspects to that position. The amillennial position, by taking everything to be completely symbolic, and then um, they too easily fall into the trap of losing touch 
with what the symbol is supposed to symbolize. There's always a reality behind the symbol. The symbol's a way of us understanding it. But this position can tend to lose track of that. Daryl Johnson adds, in trying to keep the symbol a symbol, it can be tempted not to take the reality being symbolized seriously enough, not to take sin and evil seriously enough, not to take the second coming of Jesus seriously enough. So, the amillennial position has some problems with it. And the post-millennial position, this idea that the thousand year, the millennium, is going to be this massive, incredible time of the Gospel. All over the world, millions and billions of people are going to repent and come to faith. It's a little bit hard to reconcile with a lot of the things that Jesus says in the Gospels. Like, narrow is the road into the kingdom. Not many will choose it. It's hard to reconcile how most of the world will come to faith in this thousand year period. And continually, Jesus is making it harder for people. Just when the rich young ruler comes with a long list of things that he feels has done great, Jesus says, all right, I got one more. Got to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It's too much for the guy. Jesus is constantly pushing people to a real, genuine faith. And this post-millennial position over the years, scholars have, have pointed out that it's, it seems really well-intended, but it, in the end, as you read the details, it comes across as incredibly naive. And it doesn't really take sin and evil seriously. It says, yes, we would all agree Jesus has defeated sin, death, and the devil in an ultimate sense. But he hasn't yet dismantled them. Just look at our world. The devil's pretty active, tempting people. Sin is rampant. People constantly making world-destroying choices in their own lives. Jesus won't fully dismantle evil, sin, death, and the devil until he comes back at his second coming. So, all three positions have some good aspects, have some problematic aspects. But I want to remind us, as we've been marching through the book of Revelation, we've done a bunch of things that have really helped us understand One of them is to recognize that it is a specific genre of literature. It's apocalyptic literature. And this use of animals and numbers and events and symbols is incredible in that it proclaims truth to us in a way that stays in our minds and our hearts. But in order to interpret it properly, we need to understand it symbolically and we need to take those symbols seriously and say they all point to a solid reality behind that. Another thing that's been really helpful for us is to set it in its first century context. This was written in the 90s, 96 to to 100 AD. John is on the Isle of Patmos as a prisoner of the Romans. He's a pastor over a whole group of churches, the seven churches, even more than that. This is a guy in the real first century writing to his people under persecution and his heart is breaking for them. And whenever one of these positions rips that out of context, 
that's when you start to go wrong. And the third thing that's really, really helped us as we interpret this book all the way through is not to ask the question, what happens next? The better question to ask is, what did John see next? Now, the difference is that the second one is exactly how Revelation unfolds. John sees this, then he sees this, then he sees this. It doesn't go in chronological order. Think of chapter 1 when we first meet Jesus giving this revelation to John. That is Jesus in his full glorified state. He has been born, lived, died, resurrected, ascended to heaven. This is Jesus ruling in all of his glory. Except that we get to chapter 12 and 13 in the middle of the book, and it's about Christmas. It's about Jesus being born. So clearly the book doesn't follow a strict chronological order. So the best question we can ask when we read Revelation is not what happened next, but what does John in fact see next? So, as you figure all that out for yourself, those are some solid interpretive guidelines. All right, well done. You got through that part, but you needed to understand that. Okay, Pete is going to read for us again Revelation 20, 7 through 10. From verse 7, When the thousand years were over, Satan will be released from the prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. The fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophet have been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right, my second point, Satan gets judged. This is extremely brief, but it's incredibly profound. The devil, sin, and even death itself will one day be thrown into the lake of fire. Totally and eternally done away with. Banished from God's presence for all eternity. Wow, do we need to hear that. We need that kind of hope now. You know, if you think about it, the collapse of marriage and family in Western society. Every devil-tempted affair. When one spouse ruins the lives of their family, that won't happen anymore. Because once the devil is gone, there's no devil to tempt and no sin to choose. Every horrific war that has plagued humankind down through time won't happen ever more. There will never be another war. Why? Because the devil isn't there to tempt world leaders <coughs> and seduce them with greed and riches and power. And there's no sinful war to choose. Every horrific murder or rape or character assassination won't ever happen again because there's no longer a devil to seduce people with lies and there's no sin to choose. These little verses in Revelation chapter 20 are phenomenal news. And the book of Revelation kind of pulls back the veil, allows us a peek at that moment when finally justice is done. And it says that death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. 
every person that you have lost in your life, every time you go to a funeral and your heart and mind is just full of grief and sorrow, death itself will be no more. Can you even imagine it? An end to all of the sorrow and the pain and the tears of this life. Incredible news. Well, now we're going to move to our final five verses. And these are what I wanted to spend the majority of time on in this sermon. And Pete's going to read those. Revelation 20 from 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it. And the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Have you ever noticed when we talk about God's judgment that our world both hates it and loves it at the same time? As human beings, we cannot stand the idea that God will judge us personally. But we absolutely want God to judge Adolf Hitler, who killed six million Jewish people in the Holocaust. We absolutely want God to judge Joseph Stalin, caused 8 million Ukrainians to die of starvation. We absolutely want God to judge R. Kelly, the rapper, who's been in the news lately. comes out that he's been abusing women and underage girls for an incredibly long time. We want God to judge those kind of people. We're okay with God's judgment as long as it isn't us personally. But that's not what happens at the end of history. Revelation 20 says clearly that everybody comes before the great white throne judgment. The throne is a dominant recurring image all the way through the book of Revelation. And I'm going to take you on a speed tour where we have seen the great throne of God at the center of the universe. First vision was in Revelation 4 or 5 which took us into the throne room at the center of the universe. And look, it said, there's a throne and someone's sitting on it. The throne is not vacant. It is not up for grabs. Many have tried to take it down through history, but God is still in control. He's still sitting on it. None has succeeded and none will ever succeed. And at that point, if you remember, John weeps because there was no one who was worthy to open the scroll of history. Until the 24 elders sing out that there is one, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns towards the throne expecting to see the Lion on the throne, but surprisingly he beholds a Lamb, a crucified and risen Lamb. And we learn that at the center of God Almighty on the throne is the heart of the crucified and risen Lamb, full of compassion and mercy and grace. Then we fast forward to chapter 7 and we again saw the second vision of a throne. John saw a great multitude of people. Endless group of people which no one could count from every tribe and nation and people group standing before the throne and the Lamb. 
And the massive crowd is crying out salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the multitude hears the promise in response. For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall, be, and shall guide them to springs of the water of life. And God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. An incredibly encouraging vision. Then we come to our third vision. Revelation chapter 8 says, Silence in heaven for about half an hour as the prayers of the saints ascend to the throne like incense. And we saw that the the metaphor, the symbol that God uses in Revelation is, is that of a golden bowl full of the prayers of the saints. And we realize that whatever that's meant to convey, it's meant to convey the idea that our prayers matter. What you and I pray to God matters. It lasts. God collects them. He keeps them. They're precious to Him and they matter in the economy of the world. Well, then we come to the fourth vision in Revelation 11 where loud voices in heaven are saying what Handel made famous in his Handel's Messiah. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He will reign forever and ever. I thought about singing, but I'm going to spare you that. The 24 elders around the throne fall on their faces and cry out, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is because you have taken your great power begun to reign then we come to our fifth throne vision and it's the longest it stretches from 16 17 to 19 5 begins with a loud voice from the throne saying it is done the wrath of god is finished from the throne we see the fall of babylon the prostitute and the loud voices singing hallelujah for the lord our god the almighty reigns finally brings us to chapter 20. So this is the sixth throne room vision in the book. I thought it was important for you to see the progression that has led up to this. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. And it talks in detail about the throne being white. Why is that a big deal? What does that symbolize? Well, white is a symbolic of both purity and justice. And when you think about it, Human beings are never 100% just when we judge. We're always a little bit biased. We never have all of the facts, all of the information. That is not so with God in His final judgment. It tells us in in the text that there are books, books on every single person, near every detail of your life. God lacks no information in His judgment. And he is totally unbiased, totally objective. God's the only one in history with the ultimate right to judge. That's why he sits on a white throne. Then it tells us in verse 11, and he who sat upon it. So, who is sitting upon it? Is this God the Father or is this God the Son? The question arises because in the various other visions, it seems to switch. Sometimes it's God the Father. Sometimes it's Jesus as the Lamb. Sometimes it's both, as in Revelation 4 and 5. Well, we're probably on safe grounds to take it as God in all of His Trinitarian fullness. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God. Building on that, it seems from several key verses in the Gospels that Jesus has the prominent role as the judge. 
we certainly know that Jesus directly prophesied himself in that role. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. There's Jesus saying, I will be the one on that throne. Then in John chapter 5. From verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Verse 27, he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. For the last 1,500 years, Christians around the world have affirmed the Apostles' Creed, which is often recited. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Bible scholar Eugene Boring. What a tragic name for a Bible scholar. That was just brutal. He says it this way. He says, God or Christ is not a possibility in John's thought. The Lamb is never an independent figure, but always Lamb as representative of God. God is never a figure different from Christ, but always God who defines Himself by Christ. It makes sense when you understand that God is there in all of His fullness, (coughs) but Jesus is given the specific role of being the voice. He is the one. He is the one who is given the power to judge. Now we come to what appear on the surface to be some confusing statements about the final judgment. Chapter 20, verse 12 and 20, 13 seem to indicate that all people, those books are open and they are judged on what? On what they have done. 2015 says, if your name is written in another book, the book of life, then everything you have done is paid for and forgiven. So how does all of that, that repeated cry to say it is you are judged on what you have done, how does that line up with the whole rest of the Bible that says that we do not earn our salvation? It's not by our good works that we earn our salvation. Well, first we need a quick quick speed tour of those verses that clearly throughout the rest of the Bible declare it's not us trying to justify ourselves to God. It's not as our world thinks that it's like a balance beam. That as long as we do more good than bad, we tip the scales and God will let us into heaven. The whole Bible says, no, that's not how it works. That's not true. And it starts in the first half of the Bible, Isaiah 53. Pete's going to read those for us. From verse 5 to 7. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, was brought, that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has oppressed He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, and he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge, my, sorry, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressor, transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Absolutely incredible scriptures. 800 years before Jesus was born that first Christmas. Lays out the gospel in incredible detail. And then it's affirmed in the gospel accounts in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by the grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. 2 Corinthians 5. 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, and the old has gone, and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to him through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and that he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And from Romans 10, 9 to 10, if we declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. All right, I heard. I hope as you heard those verses read over you, what an amazing encouragement. It's an open and shut case. You definitely cannot earn your salvation by works, by justifying yourself before God based on what you've done. No balance scale, none of that. There's no debate about it. So what is going on in Revelation 20 when it says over and over that all the books record all of our life, all of our actions, and we are ba judged based on what we have done? Well, Daryl Johnson gives us a very helpful analogy. He says, imagine you aren't feeling well, and you go off to the doctor one day, and you get an appointment, you walk in, you go up to the receptionist, and you say, I am here because this doctor, she is the best doctor in our whole town. She's amazing. And the receptionist said, she is indeed. She's amazing. Finally, it's your turn. You go in to see her. You describe your symptoms. She checks your vitals, does some blood work, sends it off to the lab, sees you again in a week. She says, I know exactly what's wrong with you. And I can cure it. But here's what you got to do. Every day, you need to walk one mile. You need to stop drinking caffeine and you need to take the three pills I'm giving you. Three pills every day. She goes, do this and I'm going to see you again in 10 days. So you leave her office filled with hope and saying to yourself, she is the best doctor. I totally trust her. Next day comes and you're getting ready for your walk. You end up walking half a mile. 
not a whole mile. You say to yourself, oh, that's good enough. That'll do. I mean, the doctor's really good, but she doesn't know me like I know me. At the office, you drink one cup of coffee instead of four. You say to yourself, I know she said cut out caffeine altogether, but I'm way less than my usual. I'm down to one out of four, one quarter of what I usually drink. Surely that's got to be good enough. Comes to dinner time, you're going to take your three pills, and you look at the three and you go, three sounds like a lot. I think I'm just going to take two out of the three. You keep this little routine up for 10 days, and then you go in to see the doctor, and she said, how are you feeling? And you say, well, doctor, you know, not really that much better. She says, oh, dear. She says, my prescriptions usually work. And, he, and you say, yeah, that's, that's what I've heard. She says, did, that, did you do what I told you to do? Well, sort of. He says, well, what does sort of mean? Well, I wasn't quite up to the one mile walking every day, so I walked a half mile. She says, I told you it had to be a full mile. I know, doctor. She says, and did you, did you knock off the caffeine? Did you stop drinking so much coffee? And you say, well, sort of. I, I only drank one cup. I usually have four. So I thought, you know, cutting it down to a quarter was, was going to be really good. She said, I said no caffeine at all. I know, I know, doctor. She says, tell me, do you trust me? I said, oh yeah, for sure, doc. I totally trust you. She says, and the three pills. Tell me you took the three pills. Well, sort of. What's with the sort of again? Well, I only took two out of the three. And the doctor says, so you don't trust me. You don't believe me. And you say, sure I do. And she says, no, you don't. Your actions prove what you really believe, what you really think. Jesus is just like the doctor. Luke 6.46, this is what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's what's happening in Revelation 20. The reason our deeds are written down is that it shows, it demonstrates what we truly believe. I quoted Ephesians 2, 8, 9 earlier. Such a clear, beautiful statement that we cannot earn our salvation by its works. But we always forget to add verse 10. And it completely lines up with Revelation 20. Pete's going to read Ephesians 2.10 for us. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us to do. Isn't that amazing? True faith works itself out in action. People have said it this way, we aren't saved by good works, but we are certainly saved for good works. That's why if someone claims to be a follower of Jesus, but they remain just as cruel, just as selfish, just as greedy, just as backstabbing, prone to gossip, as they were before they supposedly had a conversion, and they do absolutely nothing for anyone else, no good, then we're on pretty safe grounds to believe that when they come before the great white throne judgment, they are not going to be pronounced sincere believers. There are millions and millions of wonderful Southern Baptist Christians. But there's also a slice when you read accounts and books and 
talk to people, there are Southern Baptists that think because they are in a Christian family and they've been Christians for three consecutive generations and they live in the state of Texas, that they are somehow automatically a Christian. That's why you end up with the insanity of a young guy claiming to be a Christian, abusing alcohol, getting in fights, cheating on his girlfriend, and then showing up on Sunday at church like everything is just peachy keen. Revelation 20 says, no, actually, his deeds prove a genuine lack of faith. There are millions and millions and millions of wonderful Roman Catholic people around the world who are legitimately saved, sincere followers of Jesus. But there's also a slice of the Roman Catholic Church that thinks because they were born Mexican or Italian that they automatically are saved. Their ethnicity saves them. That's why you can end up with the insanity of an Italian mafia guy going out, killing three of his enemies, laundering money, collecting revenue from a drug trade, but goes to confession once in a blue moon and figures he's got it nailed down. He's going to spend eternity with Jesus. The great white throne judgment says no, actually, his deeds show a genuine lack of faith. But here is the really, really, really good news of Revelation 20. Everyone who does have a genuine faith, whose actions lined up with what they believe, even when it's faltering, even when it's erratic, but their heart was sincere, all of the genuine believers and followers of Jesus have their name written in another book, the Lamb's Book of Life. When a person cries out in sincere repentance and faith, they immediately get their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And something amazing happens to the other book where everything we've ever done is written down. All of our sins, all the sins of commission, the lying, cheating, stealing, false testimony, murdered, all of our sins of omission, all the good we failed to do in life, all of it gets covered up by the greatest eraser in all of history, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Once your name is written in the book of life, you never have to worry about the final judgment. Daryl Johnson wraps it up this way. He says, at the end of the history, at the great white throne judgment, I'm going to look straight into the heart of the one who sits on the throne. I'm going to look straight into the eyes of the Lamb who sits at the heart of the one who sits on the throne. And I'm going to say, Jesus, you see my whole life, all of my sins, the bad I did and the good I failed to do. But you, Jesus, shed your blood for me. You claim me for your own. You wrote my name in your book of life. And I will hear Jesus say these words, I did indeed welcome forever. Daryl says, and I will fall at his feet a puddle of gratitude and joy. Now that, Ocean View Community Church, is a future worth living for. Amen?